Live from the KIJU studios in beautiful Ogasawara, this is the Monster Island Film Vault bonus episode 13. I hate Pacific Rim Uprising, change my mind. Hello, Kaiju lovers, and welcome to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through Tokusatsu. I am your host, Monster Island's media master, Nate Marchand, and we got a special little bonus episode here for you. Yes, Jimmy, I know you're looking forward to it, but I am not. Although, I am looking forward to talking more with our guest today, because... He might have a David and Goliath situation on his hands, although now that I think about saying that, that means I'm going to end up with a stone embedded in my skull, possibly. (laughs) But yes, the co-host of the Drift Space podcast, everyone's favorite or least favorite (laughs) critic on the internet, Jack Hudgens. Thank you. Thank you. No, no. Stay seated. It's fine. <laughs> it's okay. The show has started. <laughs> the show has started. Oh, it, the it, vault has been saved. Oh, I'm here. No, it's oh, okay. So, it's uh, all right. I, I'm waiting for the gauntlet to be thrown at this point. I'm <laughs> <laughs> now I'm just thinking of that scene in Robin Hood Men in Tights where the guy says, I challenge you to a duel. And he smacks the guy with the glove. And then Robin Hood picks up a gauntlet and... <laughs> Smacks the guy upside the head, knocks him out. (laughs) Oh, I forgot all about the scene. That's the scene that actually made me go see the movie. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Yes. Today is a little bit different. Today is a little bit different. It's a little bit of an experiment as well. We may need some refereeing from my intrepid producer today. I'm not sure. We'll see how it goes. So if any of you here are familiar, at least in meme form... (laughs) louder with crowder's a change my mind series on youtube that's basically what we're doing here except about pacific rim uprising (laughs) let's go (laughs) oh snap so basically what we're going to be doing here is jack is going to make a valiant case Mm -hmm. for pacific rim uprising because I adore the original movie. I hate the sequel. (laughs) (laughs) But you, Jack, do not hate the sequel, which actually astonished me a little bit when I first heard about that. No, I don't. I I actually... Now, that wasn't always the case. Oh, really? Uh, That wasn't always the case. And I think I told you before, there are probably movies I can count on one hand where I've... The first time I watched them did not like them at all and then i came back to them and found something else right actually well before when you were still in the green room we were talking a little bit about that you know power rangers 2017 was like that right right power rangers 2017 i did not like at first and ends up ended up being my favorite movie of 2017 Mm. at the end of the day now i don't like pacific rim uprising that much (laughs) and like at least in comparison to the 2017 power rangers and to, you know, to you and those who were disappointed because the first one is such a masterpiece. Right. I get it. I do get it. And, and mm-hmm. there's absolutely no defense I can make 
that could possibly elevate it up to the first movie's level. Well, yeah, I, and which um, I, I appreciate that because you are no fool. You are still the one who will say, yes, it does not equal the first movie, which maybe that's the the first issue that the film just ran into. It's a sequel being made to an extraordinary film. <laughs> it's so... It's going to disappoint in some form or another, I would say, unless you catch that lightning in a bottle and you get a Terminator 2 on your hands. Yeah, and you know, and I, and I get it. And I think the initial viewing was because I was so in love with the first movie. And like I said, I can count on one hand the number of movies I've seen where, you know, I walk out disappointed, but then it grows on me. So, but something drew me back. And I, I went back to it and felt that the decisions that were hollow and cynical, like, you know, the fridging of Mako. Oh, were, that's, were, that's a big point of contention for me. Yeah, it is. It is for me, too. But I feel like those decisions were almost too obvious to be that cynical. Mm-hmm. Okay. Honestly, bonus episode or not, I should have played this during the broadcast. America, 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 America. America, I do. And now, back to the episode. Yeah, well, let, before guess... we get into this, let's set the stage a little bit for anybody who's not familiar with this. Yeah, absolutely. So this was a film. It was released. I'm trying to remember when it was released. Was it 2017, 2016? Uprising. It Uprising. was, I want to say 17. Well, no, 17. It was a little ways after it. There had been talk of making a sequel to the mm, original. It was 2018. 2018, okay. Because there yeah. had been talk of making a sequel to the original film for a while. But mm -hmm. Guillermo del Toro, because he is a workaholic who does a thousand things all at once, yeah. never got around to actually making it. Now, he's credited as, a, I think, a, an executive producer or is it just a producer? I want to say producer. Yeah, he's credited um, as a producer on here, but I, for what I understand, his involvement was relatively minimal. Well, he he did come up with some of the bigger ideas. Yeah, in the movie, yeah. There are some of his ideas are in here, which we'll talk a little bit about. But the premise of this is that it's ten years after the original film. There have not been any kaiju attacks, and life has been slowly getting back to normal. Which I, I will say, I do appreciate the world building in this. I think it's an interesting progression for sure mm -hmm. with what they have in there. With you know, at the beginning, we're talking about cities slowly being rebuilt and then there's this kind of weird black market for things that most people take for granted nowadays you know like like breakfast cereal you know you know which is kind of funny and it also makes a little bit of sense and now the jaeger technology has been shifted into doing other things now it's used by police forces and things like that that's all very interesting. And then our main character, played by John Boyega of Star Wars fame, if you want to say that. <laughs> mm. playing, <laughs> yeah, but go on. <laughs> yeah, playing Stacker Pentecost's son, which is a really odd concept, <laughs> given what we saw of him in the previous movie. And he's basically a scavenger, just making his way in the world. And then... He gets roped into joining a new Jaeger force because of his dad. And 
then weird things start happening with Jaegers. And eventually, as time goes on, we find out that the Precursors are making a second attempt at world domination. Of course! <laughs> so he gets pressed into service with a bunch of young cadets to keep the Precursors from winning this time. That's kind of the plot in a nutshell, and there's a lot of crazy things that happen within it, which we'll get into. Yeah, and I guess we should preface this by saying you know, Del Toro was originally slated to direct a sequel that was going to be pretty different than this movie. Mm -hmm. It was it had a different uh, title, too, and I liked the other title so much more. Maelstrom. Maelstrom, yeah. I'm like, yeah. that just sounds so cool. I'm like, why? Up uprising, mm -hmm. Uprise and Uprising, Rise, whatever. It is such an overused title now. I agree. I, I preferred... Del Toro's title, and I, I would have preferred, probably preferred, uh, Del Toro's original vision with, you know, Rally and Mako back. Mm -hmm. But once again, we can thank, you know, the higher ups, execs, and corporate nonsense delaying a movie that he mm -hmm. felt he could do. A lot of what put this movie in jeopardy was the transition from WB to universal mm -hmm. for legendary. Cause around the time this movie was announced and was supposed to go in production was when legendary had announced that it was going to partner with universal. Mm -hmm. It was also right after legendary was purchased by, was it Wanda? Wanda. Yeah. Wanda. The, the Chinese studio, which yeah, I have opinions about that, but cause you can see the Chinese influence on all of well, most of Legendary's work since then. Well, it, it was Universal that halted the film mm -hmm. and definitely delaying it for a little bit because there were scheduling conflicts with certain studios he wanted to shoot at, and Del Toro also wanted to do another movie mm -hmm. at the time. I can't remember what it was. I want to say it was the Ghost movie that he did. What was it called? Oh, the Haunted um, House movie. Yeah, I liked it too. Keep talking, I'll look it up. Yeah, thank you. So there were scheduling conflicts with that, but it was actually Wanda. Once Wanda purchased Legendary, everyone was like, oh, well, Pacific Rim 2 will most likely happen now because... Crimson Peak. You know, Crimson Peak, that's it. Yeah, it was a good one. Um, or Shape of Water? Those, they were oh, both was it of Shape those. of Water? Oh, it might have been Shape of Water instead. Yeah, because uh, Crimson Peak was 2015, Shape of Water is 2017. Probably Shape of Water. But well, the point well is, Crimson Peak was made by Universal. Oh, I don't know, but the point is yeah. <laughs> that <laughs> the point is is that Del Toro, the scheduling conflicts that halted production, forced Del Toro to move on, basically. So we have Universal to thank for that. But on the other hand, we have Wanda to thank for making sure that a Pacific Rim sequel was made. This regardless. is true. This is true because the original film, unfortunately, underperformed in the U.S. box office, but it made money like gangbusters in China. Yeah. And a little fun fact that even though worldwide Pacific Rim did do better, Pacific Rim was never number one at the box office in the United States, no, whereas Pacific Rim Uprising... Pacific Rim Uprising did open at number one. <laughs> Which is just weird. But then it just like, it just tanked after that. Yes, that's true. That is very true. So, you know, what do you, what do you do from here, right? Because you lose the director that created this world. Scheduling conflicts are abound. And even the, the lead star, Charlie Hunnam, he went on to do a passion project of his, King Arthur. Mm -hmm. And the replacement director. Stephen S. Knight, yeah. 
yeah, best known for the Spartacus TV show and the first season of Daredevil on Netflix. Mm -hmm. He took over and he had written a script with Charlie Hunnam in mind, and he didn't even know Hunnam wasn't going to be available until he read it in the trades. Oh, jeez, that's terrible. <laughs> yeah. yeah so, I, so, yes, I will I will grant this film a little bit of leeway. There was a lot of things that went into it that were beyond its control that handicapped it. Right. So I will and, grant and it, it was, that. It was unfortunate, you know. And, and you know, what I discovered, Stephen DeKnight, he had a lot of hurdles. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he had originally written a screenplay with Charlie Hunnam and he found out in the trades that Hunnam had signed for King Arthur and he panicked. Right. And he went to Del Toro for advice and it was Del Toro's idea, actually, that he write yes. a movie about Pentecost's son. Right. You know, he goes, oh, OK. All right. So Pentecost has a son. And I have to admit, you know, once the movie does get rolling, I completely forget about the oddity that Pentecost has a son. Yeah. Right, because we we never hear him mentioned or anything like that in the first movie, and and going into Uprising, I was very mm, apprehensive at this idea, but at the same, what, again, once it got rolling, I I didn't really mind it. Like it didn't affect my suspension of belief at all mm-hmm. that he could be, you know, Pentecost's son. So he designed this movie, but tonight he designed this movie around a new character and several supporting characters from the original. And a shame since it was the characters of the first movie that really made it. And and I I find it funny that while I think Raleigh Beckett is a stronger character, I actually find John Boyega to be a more charming lead actor. I will give him that. I think Boyega, once you get him out of the Star Wars films, I do feel like he got a little bit handicapped in the Star Wars films. But mm-hmm. he does have a genuine charm and charisma to him, I found out, actually, because I did do my homework, because I do my homework around here. I did listen to the commentary and watched all the special features on the Blu-ray and things like that, and I found out that actually scenes that I thought, like, why are we doing a poor emulation of the MCU with this dialogue? And then I found out, oh, that was improvised. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, a lot of dialogue was improvised. A lot of dialogue, specifically the dialogue between him and Scott Eastwood's character. Yeah, the son of uh, Clint Eastwood, which is just wild. Yeah, it is uh, one of the few times I have ever had name affinity with a character in a kaiju film. Oh, Nathan Lambert? Yep. <laughs> <Is that> what- <laughs> yep, Nathan Lambert. I'm like, oh, we got a Nathan in Pacific Rim. I could get there you go. Yeah. this. Uh, maybe. <laughs> the other one was Godzilla versus Kong, so... <laughs> Oh, right, right, right. You know, and, and I like Lambert. I, I, he, he really doesn't have a lot to do. No. Uh, he doesn't have an arc, really, which is unfortunate because in, in the first movie, even the tiniest supporting roles had arcs, you know? Mm-hmm. But I, I, the, most, the most that we can say about Lambert's art, arc is that, you know, he finds his brother again. Essentially. And, and that's one of the things that Denight was really trying to do. What he said was one of the primary themes was finding that connection again, which is a lot like the first movie. Right. You know, finding that connection. But in, in this case, reconnecting with what was lost. Right. Essentially. Right. Yeah. was one of the big themes in this yeah. movie. Although so. I still feel like they dropped the ball on that one because it didn't seem like, especially at first, when I first saw the film, it didn't feel like drift compatibility meant as much in this. That was a huge deal. It was a central facet. 
in mm-hmm. the original film. And here, I just felt like it was just treated very nonchalantly that these characters were a little bit just interchangeable with each other. It didn't matter. You could just plug someone in and it would work. You know, mm-hmm. unless you're the <clears throat> unless you're new girl who needed to learn how to actually pilot a Jaeger with more than one person because she was right. used to doing it by herself because she made her own, which I don't mind this concept. I don't mind that character, although I'm a newt. I don't mind that all, at all. I like kind of like the idea of this little mechanic girl who makes herself a small one-person Jaeger. I was totally cool with that. But, you know, and she had mm-hmm. to learn how to do it with two, but drift compatibility didn't seem to mean as much this time. I, I'll concede that drift compatibility was used more haphazardly and wasn't really taken to another level in this. You know, we, mm-hmm. we'd have to wait until Pacific Rim, the black. Oh yeah. Before, you know, we saw that concept played with a little bit more. Yeah. But I felt I, like the black, this is a bit of a side tangent, but I will say, I feel like the black basically just cherry picked some of the good ideas. Cause there are good ideas in uprising, just cherry picked the good ideas from uprising and then kind of ignored everything else. <laughs> Well, kind of. Yes and no. I mean, they definitely, you know, I, I like how they call them the uprising wars. Yeah. In the black. That was kind of, I was like, okay, that that's kind of cute, cool, cute little nod yeah. there. But anyway, drift compatibility. But drift compatibility wasn't as big of an issue, uh, big of a, uh, you know, wasn't as taken seriously as it was in the first movie. And that that's a bummer. But mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of other things working for this movie that people don't really look at and, and a lot of that has to do with the hurdles that the knight had to overcome you mm-hmm. know and and again i do think john boyega is a very charming actor here and there's the trade-off is is that we got a not not as strong of a character for a more enjoyable lead performance mm-hmm. i do think boyega has more charisma than charlie hunnam they're different kinds oh, yeah. of actors but Charlie Hunnam worked as Raleigh really well in the first film. Uh, I hmm. I think Hunnam worked just enough okay. in the first movie. I, I'll say that. <laughs> he okay. worked just, just enough. Yeah. Uh, I, I, so basically, but, I'm, what I'm saying is I understand Boyega is probably the better actor of the two of them. Mm-hmm. But Hunnam got the... I agree with you. Hunnam got the more interesting character. <laughs> he got the more interesting character. Hunnam has the benefit of the screenplay in Pacific Rim. Boyega had the benefit that he's just a stronger actor. Yeah. And so there's... Again, that's a little bit of a trade-off. And he certainly is more enjoyable here than another <clears throat> sci-fi franchise he's in. <laughs> I... <laughs> Ah, Jimmy agrees. <laughs> there we go. There we go. And I will say, I will, I will bring this up. I, I find it funny. There's a scene in the movie where he goes, "I'm not my father. I don't make big speeches." But he actually had a really great speech. And then he makes the, and then he makes the big speech. <laughs> he makes the big speech. I mean, it's I nowhere was... near as memorable as his dad's. But <laughs> no, no. But you know what? Definitely hit different in light of. Well, he was uh, a big part of a lot of the 2020 marches oh, going okay. on. And, and, so the BLM whatnot. marches? Yeah, and he there, there was some video footage of him being profoundly inspiring in, in that. And then you, you go back and you look at his speech in Pacific Rim Uprising, and it was just like, oh, wow. 
<laughs> no, it, you re-listen to it. It's it just hits a lot different. Yeah, I, I could see that. I could see that. So here's a couple. Uh, here's the concessions that I will get uh, that I will give, and then we'll get mm-hmm. into you know my issues with the film. Okay, I like the hybrids. Okay, I think the hybrids are really interesting, and it makes it, it feels like a natural progression. I do think, given what we saw in the first film, we would see them collect the kaiju bits, and then someone basically try to pull a Kiryu and make drones with biological brains. And then that goes, as you would expect, very poorly, (laughs) used and the precursors use it to their advantage. I like that idea. I kind of wish they had leaned into it a little bit more. I do too. And I think Del Toro's original story was going to lean into it a little bit more. Right. They were Uh, using concepts that Del Toro had. Yeah. Yeah. Because Del Toro said from the beginning that there's going to be, you know, kaiju Jaeger hybrids involved. But I think I believe he also mentioned that it was going to be different than how they were used here. I think I think the the kaiju Jaeger hybrids would have been naturally developed by the military as a deterrent against potential precursor uprisings. Right. Right. Right, and and I talked but, about Newt and her little Jaeger and things like that. It gets a it has a very kind of Ender's Game feel to it at points for a while, which again I can appreciate. It makes sense that they would have to recruit new, much younger pilots to do what they're doing. You keep calling her Newt. Is not is it Newt? Yeah, well, Newt. No, Newt is the other guy. Sorry, Newt's I, Charlie. I, I got it completely character. wrong. See, I, I I I hate this movie so much. I forget their names. Amara. Uh, see, uh, Amara, well, here, here's the deal. I, I thought you were making a refer- an Aliens reference to her. It, it kind of for is. For a second. Uh, but there's also a character named Newt. Whoopsie. Right. Yeah, Jimmy, drop the ball there. You should have corrected me. <laughs> oh, you thought it was an Aliens reference, too. Okay, gotcha. Sure. Sure. He just wanted you to embarrass yourself. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> You two are like mind readers at this point. Yeah, you, know, just, just, you, know, you, you jerk, Jimmy. You're, you're whatever. And you don't truly know someone until you fight them. That, oh, <laughs> there was a fight. <laughs> yeah, tell me after the show. All right. So again, I will give concession to that, and I don't. And I will say that the the younger pilots, their interactions actually made sense. I will say, again, having read Ender's Game, I can see a little bit of it there. Do I like it as much as the character interactions we have in the first movie? No, but I don't like most things in this movie as much as the first. Mm. (laughs) Well, okay, so ultimately, Tonight was saddled with a blockbuster sequel that was given less time, less money, less resources, and just, not the full cast, and and just had to do the best with what he had. Right. And I will admit, I was actually thinking at first for a while, I was like, how do you make a sequel to this? Because the easy way to do it, which I thought Del Toro is too smart to do this, is just make it a second invasion. That's not what I want. (laughs) You did the invasion movie already. Doing a second invasion... It's just it's going to be a horrible case of sequelitis, and thankfully, it's not entirely a second invasion of this. No, it's not. There, there's there's more going on, but the way this is done behind the scenes, the way this was pulled off, with you know, again, less of everything. Does this sound like anyone to you? 
we've seen this before in a very similar genre and franchise. And and the, the thing is, this is Jun Fukuda. Okay. Oh, this is this is June, this is what Jun Fukuda had to do with three Godzilla movies in a row. You know, and I remember in the early days of the online fandom, Fukuda was reviled as one of the worst Godzilla directors. All right. Back in like 95 through the early 2000s and whatnot, which Just, is you know, very undeserved. Extraordinarily, extraordinarily. He's since been reevaluated. Thank God. But it's only been in more recent decades that his films have been put on a pedestal for making the best of a bad situation. And let's face it, Fukuda actually had a few wonderful screenplays that begged for more than he had the resources for, but he made it work. And mm-hmm. that's talent. That's talent. And while I don't think Denight was as crunched as Fukuda was, and I certainly think that's where their directorial similarities stop, I do think they were both very resourceful filmmakers mm-hmm. in the confines of the situations they were put in. Mm-hmm. Are, are either one of their, you know, films as close to the original Pacific Rim or the original Godzilla? No, no. Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla isn't Godzilla 1954. And that's not an excuse. I look at that as a compliment, mm-hmm. right? you know, it, it was, you, you, you think about the amount of time, money and support both Del Toro and Honda had to really polish their films. And, and you get another pr- production where a studio says, we want this movie and we want it out at this point and you have less time and money to do it. Good luck. I know. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I get it. I totally get it. I, I understand I that there are some that. things that, like I said, beyond this movie's give- control. Right. I give points for that because part of the microcosm uh, uh, I review movies in is is what kind of things the filmmakers had to overcome. And part of my enjoyment of this movie is knowing what they had to overcome and seeing what they accomplished in spite of. And I think that speaks volumes to the filmmakers who 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 do that and still have time to think about little details like the deconstruction of uh, Lu Chow. Right. I, I, I love the idea that this character who comes off like we, we we're given red herring with this character. OK, mm-hmm. we think she's the villain. Maybe she's behind these the 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 precursors coming back or these Jaeger uh, Kaiju hybrids or or the Jaeger with the Kaiju brain in it and stuff like that. Right. We're we're, we're thinking, you know, she's too stern and too uptight to be trusted. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, she isn't the the true heel in this movie mm-hmm. but as she becomes more likable as she becomes more human and deconstructed as it were you know you see her physically let things down like her hair isn't mm-hmm. tied up in a bun quite as much she lets mm-hmm. her hair down she's not wearing as much makeup all the way to the tail end where she's piloting scrapper remotely mm-hmm. and she's got her hair down she's sweaty and she's in like a t-shirt and she's got like you know, grease and like mm-hmm. oil all over her face and stuff like that. Suddenly she's a person, right? Mm-hmm. And she's likable, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I enjoyed that those those details because you don't have those kind of details in a movie where a director just didn't care. Right, right. Okay, and, and, and I appreciate the love put into that. And there's a lot of things in this movie that do work. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of that. Uh, let me bring up Xiao here. Okay. Because on paper and in principle, I agree with you. The problem is that metatextually, I end up not liking Shao 
because, and I, this might be a bit of a hot take for some people, it's not original to me. I've heard this on at least one other podcast. I think Chow is China pandering. And you're not wrong. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, and you're not wrong. I could make, if you, you could interpret it this way, I don't know if this was the actual intention. I have no evidence to back this up. This is purely conjecture on my part, but it's kind of interesting that, well, not co- interesting, but it's maybe an interesting coincidence that we have a Chinese character who was presented at first as the villain who turns out not to be the villain, basically replacing the very popular and beloved Japanese character. Uh, because they literally kill her off, and now suddenly, here's the Chinese woman replacing the Japanese okay. woman. And I would, I would accept that. I would accept the replacement argument if it weren't for the fact that Mako's death was supposed to set up her the continuation of her character in the third movie. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that or you want to talk about Shao? Because I have well, opinions about Mako in this. I do too. I do too. But in terms of Chao, I think, you know, yes, there was, there was Chinese pandering. Yes, they wanted to sell mm-hmm. this movie to the Chinese audience and it, it didn't work. It wasn't as successful as mm-hmm. the first Pacific Rim. Yeah. Well, now, uh, I will say this. I will say this. The, the actress who's in this was also in Kong Skull Island. I'm going to look up mm-hmm. her name here really quick. Uh, Jing Jian. Yeah. Her character in this actually has plot relevance, unlike her character in Skull Island. In Skull Island, right. <laughs> in Skull right. Island, she's window dressing, and they couldn't even bother to like have her get eaten by a monster. I was just like, why are you here? Other than China pandering. <laughs> right. No, I, I couldn't. I, I didn't understand why she was necessary in Skull Island at all. But that you, you could say that about a bunch of characters in Skull Island. Yeah, but I mean, at least a lot of them existed to be fodder for monsters, but yeah. Right. They're red uh, shirts, here, you know? <laughs> here, yeah, okay, so it's China pandering. So it's it's essentially a mandate, right? Right. Because we have never watched movies or series in this genre with mandates on them. <laughs> now, I... <laughs> now i just saw that band perform here actually the band i mandates fun guys <laughs> now again i don't want this to be an excuse though i think that obviously the night was told you gotta use her <laughs> and yeah and he made the best of the situation and he did he did he really did because he he decided okay i'm going to make her a red herring character and we're going to deconstruct her as being human once it's revealed who the real heel is. Mm-hmm. And we're going to kind of unite her with something, another plot point that we had set up very early in the movie, which was Scrapper. Right. You know, you knew Scrapper was going to come back and be this sort of like, you know, day saving oh, yeah. mechanism of some sort. But how to do it was going to be difficult and i was very impressed with the unison of shao's technology with amara's tech amara's right. tech in this movie right I, uh you know they, they 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 united those two unlikely components together mm-hmm. and made someone who is very unlikable at the beginning fairly likable saving our main characters at the tail end mm-hmm 
And I, I think that worked beautifully. And I, I really enjoyed the, the evolution of that character mm-hmm. based on how, you know, her company had been, was, was falling apart and her relationship with the PPDC. Mm-hmm. So, it, and her relationship with the PPDC is interesting. She, you know, they don't exactly see eye to eye. They're, mm-hmm. they're very much butt heads. There's, it's mm-hmm. not, it's an uneasy relationship. Mm-hmm. Right. So the fact that she has to come in and help them and the PPDC has to accept her help, it's almost like they're both swallowing their pride there. Mm -hmm. And that's just another example of almost rekindling a connection Mm -hmm. because they there's these two components that are trying to work together but they don't really need one another, mm-hmm. right? Because she she's creating this whole new next-gen kind of Jaeger mm-hmm. that can operate on their own, and the PPDC completely rely on pilots mm-hmm. to do this thing. It, it's it's the Top Gun Maverick discussion at the beginning. Yeah, yes, of that. yeah, it, which right. is a, it's a very classic science fiction, not dilemma, but the discussion, you know, the mm-hmm. automation versus piloting, you know, the human right. factor. And I do feel like this movie does come out in, I think it's primarily in favor of the human factor, but it doesn't discount the fact that automation has its place. Exactly. Exactly. There, there is a place for automation, but just not mass automation. Right. Because we saw what happened with that. Right. And I think there was a, there was, there was at least some lip service paid to whether or not using a kaiju brain at for this was a good idea maybe mm-hmm. not from an ethical standpoint but just you know, is this the smartest thing to do well and i you know i would have loved to have seen del toro tackle this in his original screenplay oh, yeah. where it was largely ppdc developing you know using kaiju brains to yeah to help help with these jaegers yeah. and it backfiring on them yeah. i think i think the ethical dilemma there would have been much larger in that, but you know what they do here is still pretty fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I will give it that. And I do like the, I do again, it feels like it does feel like a natural progression that suddenly we do have not suddenly, but now we have a corporation, private corporation mm-hmm. getting into the Jaeger manufacturing business business because yeah it's not as necessary for military defense anymore. And we see this kind of stuff all the time. The military develops technology for themselves and then eventually it trickles down into the civilian market. Take right. the Hummer, for example. Manufactured in my home state. That was originally a military vehicle and then they started manufacturing them for civilian use and they were very popular for a while. Right, yeah. And, you know, this that is a fantastic evolution. And I do I do appreciate the idea that the precursors are essentially using the world saving tech right against the world right this time around. Right. They're, they're I, trickier I, with their infiltrating. Yeah, I have opinions about their plot in this, but we'll get to that. Do you wanna Move on to Mako since we've already hinted at it. Okay, so okay. Mako. I Because I, I will agree. tell you right now, Mako's death was the moment when I watched this initially in the theater. That was the moment I turned against the movie. And I turned off too. I turned off too. I don't agree Shao is Mako's replacement. Maybe in this movie momentarily. And and I wish tonight had had the foresight 
to just go ahead and do whatever with Mako that he was going to do with her character. Now, I will say he said he lost a lot of sleep over that. I'd listen to the commentary. Mm -hmm. I know you spoke very highly of the commentary. I'm like, I will prepare by listening to the commentary. So I'm a little bit more forgiving because he said it was not an easy decision for him to make. I'm grateful to hear that. And he has said repeatedly on Twitter to everyone, he's just like, I did not take the decision lightly. Lightly. I did not say, but he said it was for the good of Jake's character, which I didn't like because I don't like fridging her yeah. for Jake. But he also said that it was for her character as well. And he has said that, you know, the next movie would have included finding Mako in the drift. Which I will admit is a fascinating concept. Yeah. It, in the moment, a- it was the worst decision I felt like they could have meant. And I, it felt, I, I'm just going to be honest with you, and uh, this trickled into how I felt like all of the returning characters were being treated. I felt, it felt so incredibly disrespectful to me. And it, like I said, that was the moment I turned against. I was like, how dare you take such a beloved character and fridge her like this? And I'm not opposed to the fridging trope but it just felt so i don't know not necessarily unnecessary but just disrespectful and the and the worst part was that in that whole scene when it happens they teased you twice she narrowly avoids dying twice Mm -hmm. and then it happens and, and that is, and it, it hurt when it happened. <laughs> that that is something this movie does pretty well. I think is it definitely throws you for a loop on multiple occasions. Mm-hmm. I, I think I, I want to just say they're outright twists, but you think it's going to go one direction and then it just pivots toward another. Yeah, in, in the moment too. Right, and I do appreciate that. I think you know there there was an early version of this where Mako doesn't die but she's, she's just in put into a coma yes she's and they drift with her to get some information to get the information about the kaiju right exactly mm-hmm. now I feel like I would have preferred that given that we're probably not getting a third movie and I right I lose sleep over that yeah I I do as well see and that was the question I was going to pose to you so knowing that this was a decision made it was risky I will get I will say it was risky but it was a decision made in order to do something really interesting in the next film. I will admit, I admire that, the boldness of it, because you plan on doing something later. The problem is is that you're probably going to get backlash in the moment because no one is going to understand why you're doing it at that moment. They're not going to know what your future plans are. Right, exactly, and that's that's the problem. Yeah, is so the majority of the, the people who watch this movie just see this as a bad decision, right? Right, especially with no sequel. Yeah, to yeah, and, which was up. the question I was going to ask. I guess should my perception and any other detractors of this film's perception change on that decision, knowing that it, there was an intended continuation? The problem is, is we don't have that, so we're kind of left with this in a vacuum. Well, I mean, the fact that we don't have a continuation isn't Denight's fault. What right. Denight's fault is is that he didn't have the foresight to just go ahead and do with Mako's character what he had planned with. Right. Uh, planned for it. And that's almost unfair to put on him because I know some some creators like to dangle just enough 
open threads in their stories to get studios interested in continuing it. Whereas others just want to play it safe and wrap it all up because there may not be uh, a second chance here, like Del Toro did with the first movie. Right. You know? Uh, or George Lucas did with the first Star Wars. Right. So, you know, what do you do? Do you wrap it all up in a tight bow and leave, you know, the possibility for a sequel to exist dangling simply from the concept that, you know, it's a pretty big world that you can continue to build on? Or do you leave purposefully left open plot points wide for a potential sequel that may or may not happen. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah, I love the Pacific Rim franchise so much that I truly, it, it really does hurt that we're not getting a third one. You know, if I could trade the last two legendary Godzilla movies for just one more Pacific Rim movie, I would mm-hmm. in a heartbeat. But back to your question, does the fridging of Mako in this movie, do you forgive it knowing what goes on behind the scenes or do you revile it based on how it works watching the movie proper? And my only answer to that is simply what helps you judge a movie better? Mm, That's a good question. For me, it's... It's learning about a movie. It's educating yourself about a movie. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I we 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 opened this discussion earlier about how I find I, I get sick of the morons who just go out and say, "Well, Godzilla movies just B movie schlock," and uh, I just like them because that's why I like. You know, they, right? They do, yeah, I remember that being a thing in 2019, right after King of the Monsters came out. Right, where the right. defense was, well, they're supposed to be bad. Yeah, they're supposed to be bad. What? Right? <laughs> That's not you, a defense. <laughs> you have a ton of people who don't want to do their homework on this. And the argument could be made, well, you a movie should just stand on its own. You shouldn't have to do the homework. But the problem with that is there are so many movies out there that are meant to be researched and looked at and explored and there's so many movies outside of our country that we don't really understand the context of because we we didn't grow up in that country during that time and even in our country even in hollywood you know there are times that we weren't alive that we need to go back and understand what was going on and why these movies were made the way they were right Mm -hmm. you know no one's i'm sure if someone looked at metropolis right now to be like, oh, B-movie schlock. Well, no. (laughs) Yeah. So I would say, again, whatever helps you judge this movie better. And for me, that's doing homework about movies. That's understanding why they are made, the the way that they're made, and, you know, the decisions behind them. Right, which is one of the founding principles of this podcast. To bridge right. that gap. I have exactly. actually gotten feedback from listeners who have told me that they have reevaluated a few films in light of episodes that I've done. Most recently, I, our mutual friend Michael actually reevaluated how he felt about Cloverfield because of my episode on it. Well, and there you go. And I think Cloverfield's a wonderful movie. Mm-hmm. I think Cloverfield is <laughs> is the true Godzilla remake of, <laughs> of the... <laughs> You know the post two thousands, the post uh, the the true American Godzilla remake of the the post two thousands. But <laughs> I'm with Jimmy. That's a hot take. <laughs>
Listen, it, it's it's a movie about a giant monster that's not symbolizing, but there's a lot of allegories to 9-11, to mm-hmm. another national tragedy with a love triangle in the middle. Yep. I mean, <laughs> you're, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. Godzilla 54. Yeah. All right. I, I just, so, I, I, again, if you haven't already listened to the episode, you will probably be cheering me in that episode because you're like, you got it, March. Ed. You got it. Anyway. I have listened to the episode and I have been screaming at that episode. Yes, it was a good one. <laughs> it, it, it was great. It's perfect. So, <laughs> Thank you. I needed to hear that. The ego is very happy right now. But anyway. So, Hello, ego. Yeah, so, so I've got a couple worry. of other big points of contention for me. To, but okay. to answer your question, uh, you know, how d- does it change things? I will concede knowing that. I'm a little bit more forgiving of it. But again, because it is basically existing in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. I have nothing else to go on. I have to take what I have been given as is. That's where the difficulty is. So I suppose the fact that you know, the lack of a sequel is what is killing it for me and making it, I think, a poor decision. But it again, it isn't. You're right. It isn't Denight's fault. He took a risk. Let's be honest. There have been other famous trilogies where the middle entries took some pretty big risks. And Massive they were swing, still able yeah. to finish it. So, right, and that's the unfortunate part here is that we right. don't get an ending. Yeah, now that yeah, that is the problem. I do think the coma route might have been a be- might have been a good compromise at this point, so we could at least know that we had the possibility, you know, the hope that something could happen in a sequel. Whereas mm-hmm. this feels very closed, even though knowing that the plan was we're going to get her back with the drift, which is. Cool. And- and that's that's another thing, though, is that with the coma, I think there would have been too much hope. Let's, ah. let's say we got a theoretical, our, our, our theoretical third movie, right? With the coma, we're just waiting for her to come back. Right. With her death and reaching back out to her in the drift and potentially drifting with her as a pilot in a Jaeger, mm-hmm. as, as that memory of her in the drift would have been a more surprising and much cooler kind of return. Right. Right. In my opinion. Yeah. So it, yeah, big swing, massive swing. And whether or not knowing that helps you sleep a little better at night, again, that's up to you. For me, it does. I will say out of all of my points of contention, that is the one that's gotten interestingly more complicated with knowledge. Mm -hmm. Because I've, I've gone from, I have turned against this movie to, I'm not sure what to think now. (laughs) <laughs> well, good because, and that's that's just it. That just all that means is, e- even if you don't like the movie after our conversation, at least you're thinking about it, right? right. And I've said this over and over. The, pr- the 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 job of a film critic is not to m- tell a person whether a movie is good or bad; it's to make you think about it, right? And whether I love a movie or hate a movie, when I talk about it, I hope your wheels are turning. I hope they're turning so much that you want to lash out at me, or I want. I hope it's turning so much that you think, oh, whoa, yeah, no, exactly, something. Something. Something is turning. Right. And, and, and it's, it's, I would rather someone lash out at me because I've struck a nerve and they're, they're only angry because they know I'm making too much sense, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I've struck a nerve and it means they're thinking about it. Right, right. Good. Think about it. Good. Think yeah. about it. I, I, I agree with you there. 
Jimmy brings up a good point. Maybe that's something I should get a little bit used to because, yeah, I've gotten a little bit of pushback about some of the things said on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, whatever. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, whatever. I, I, I welcome discourse. That's the thing. You want to write in and tell me that you disagree? I welcome it. Please tell me. You know, if I got something wrong, please tell me. You know, I want to engage in that. You know, audience participation is always welcome. Now, well, and here's the thing: when it comes down to name calling, that's when you know you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You you lose <laughs> like, once ah. the ad hominems start flying. Okay, <laughs> if you lead with "you're an idiot," let me tell you why you're an idiot. I'm like, I don't care why you think I'm an idiot. You could be right, but I don't care. <laughs> you led with "you're an idiot," <laughs> so. Well, being called an idiot is one thing, but just the, the like. I mean, like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to call people who just call the Godzilla series mindless schlock idiots because that, that's just wrong. Okay. <laughs> no, what, what I'm talking about is vicious, flame war inducing. <laughs> oh, Jimmy knows all about flame wars. Just, <laughs> just uh, criticism that is off the wall, you know, trying to, to get your attention because they are so offended, right? Right. That's when you know. <laughs> yes, that's that's when you know. So I have a couple of other big contentions. I will go with the yeah. lesser of the two. Mako's death is probably second on my list at this oh, point. Maybe whoa. first. I'm not entirely sure. It was the one I had the most visceral reaction to, admittedly, when I first saw the film. I would have to say that's, the, from what my experience, the number one contention. Yeah. Yeah. And, so yeah, I'll be, okay. yeah, it's probably number one. But we got number one out of the way. So there's a couple more. I'll go with the lesser of the two. The special effects, specifically how the Jaegers are presented. Mm -hmm. I don't like it in this. They feel like bay formers. They're 20 feet tall, not 200. The weight and impact of what was in the first film, which was a key thing that Del Toro wanted. He supervised ILM. It's not ILM in this. It's double negative. It's a different special effects house. And Del Toro was meticulous about getting the special effects right. I watched the special features for when we did our first episode on Pacific Rim. He was obsessive about this, but that's how Del Toro is. He's incredibly detail-focused. The de Those sort of details I find a bit lacking in this. And my biggest problem is I don't like how the Jaegers move in this because they feel, like I said, they feel 20 feet tall, not 200. At points, they almost feel like action figures. Oh, I will admit, yeah, the Jaegers did feel faster, more agile. Mm -hmm. And to me, this was just, it was a stylistic decision mm -hmm. that, you I know, think that, there is it, an explanation given in-universe, but it doesn't get talked about a whole lot. It's more implied than anything else, which is... Advanced, well, more advanced is it more advanced Jaeger technology? It's been ten years since the war. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're going to be more advanced by far, and they look more advanced. You know, we have more of these hologram screens. The suits mm -hmm. are different. I do like the new costumes, the new pilot suits. Right. You can tell the cockpits have been upgraded. They're not right. quite as dangerous to walk around in. Mm -hmm. I actually like do like the advancements on the cockpits. I that's that was a decision I was behind. Because that See, made I, that actually made sense. The cockpits they make sense, but I I had just as much of a problem, you know, visually with them as I do with the movement of the Jaegers. But that's not because 
I think it's a flaw necessarily. It's just that they've had 10 years of peace to really perfect these things. And I preferred the kind of like flawed, scrappy, you know, rusting sort of environment that the earlier Jaegers had. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, imper- the imperfect machines mm-hmm. that were scrapped together quickly and, you know, were, you know, the, the last Jaegers on the planet, right? Mm-hmm. That, that was it. These Jaegers, I mean, they've been working on these for a decade. Mm-hmm. And we, we've, we've bypassed a few marks since then, too. Mm-hmm. So the fact that they're faster and more agile and, and more, you know, I, Apple store looking, I guess, <laughs> is... It doesn't bother me that that was the decision that was made. It just bothers me that we've fast-forwarded that much into the future. Right. If that makes any sense. I, I, that um, does make some sort of sense. It, I, I prefer the aesthetic in Pacific Rim. I'm right. with you there. But I also understand why they look and move and are the way they are in this mm-hmm. new movie. And as far as the effects go, I you know... To me, one of the things that people were singing the this movie's praises about because I think it's something that is grossly overvalued is we got daylight battles. I'm like, I don't care about daylight battles. Okay, but here's the deal: when most of the battles that we have in in the dark from Legendary take place in shrouded snow or rain or fog, then yeah, I'm going to praise the daylight. Battles. <laughs> I mean, I get I, it. I get it. it but I, you know, I think back to the Battle of Hong Kong in the original film. Yeah, that's set at night, but it's so that the, the, the knee and the rain. Yeah, there's rain, but it's the rain was moody, and it's at night, so the neon really shows. Yeah, it, it yeah. was a great looking battle, and you know, Godzilla versus mm-hmm. Kong copied that to lesser success. Yeah. And yeah. I, here, so we get a daylight battle. It's not so much that we finally get a daylight battle. It's that we finally get someone with the balls to do a daylight battle. And quite frankly, it's something that we, we don't see much in, in these movies as of recent. And double negative, it is double negative, right? Yeah. That, yeah, yeah. I think they did a wonderful job in terms of that listen to me cg is just cg like it, cg is just a different type of fake okay i, right. I it, it's it's a different type of special effect right I can, right 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 that is actually eye. that's something that i've concluded that everyone it keeps talking about different special effects techniques about which are better and things like soupmation miniatures or they're inferior to you know, think uh, to the modern CGI special effects i'm like no there's still a level of unreality with all of these Right, exactly. Yeah, that you have eye. to grant it, yeah, unless you are actually filming a giant robot or a giant monster or whatever it is that you're showing. You find the real thing and film it. Come to Monster Island if you want to do that. But mm-hmm. you know, unless you could do that, you have to fake it, and you're not going to recreate it, quote unquote, exactly, perfectly. No, absolutely not. And that's okay, too, honestly. Let CG look like CG. Stop arguing that it's this big, superior special effects style. It's or inferior, like for that matter. Or inferior. It, it, it's, just, it's just CG. I think it's overused, I'll say that. But it, it's just CG. Like, listen, when I saw, what was it, uh, Captain America, which was the one where everyone fought the, like, the... 
Iron Man was in it. Civil War. Civil War. Yeah, that one. Listen, when Spider-Man flips into action and grabs Captain America's shield and lands, I can totally tell it's CG. The human eye can detect mm-hmm. just based, based on how they move, what is CG. That didn't stop from me appreciating the highly dramatic moment. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just because I could tell, I could just tell. That, that's just fact. And in terms of this movie, I thought CG was perfectly fine, acceptable, whatever. What I was more impressed by was how well everything was framed in battle. I never lost sight of, you know, where they were, the space mm-hmm. that they were in. I thought everything was framed that I could see everything. And I thought a lot of the shots, like, you know, when Gypsy Avenger punches one of the kaiju and we see this kind of like energy absorption sort of like follow along the camera mm-hmm. sort of follows along its body and into his fists and then punches. I, like I could understand the visuals being communicated right. there. Right. There was never a moment where the shots were too close where I couldn't understand what was going on. Mm-hmm. The night knew to frame this like you would a you know a, a regular fight scene between right. two regular sized people. In fact, he he got the fight choreographer from Daredevil right to right. help out with some of these kaiju Jaeger fights. Right, 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 right. And I mean, just look at the famous hallway fight from mm-hmm. I can't remember which episode it was, but it was the season one episode of Daredevil. It is absolutely brilliant. Yeah, it's fantastic. And and I think I think a lot of the hits and a lot of the framing that we see in this movie. One of my favorite shots in the battle is <laughs> this one. I think it's I think by this point we have Mega Kaiju and Who can Voltron the, but Jaegers can't. <laughs> right, right. Well, hey, third movie. Uh, but he, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would have I would have been totally for that. Just saying. I mean <laughs> And so we have the one, I think it's, it's not Bracer Phoenix, is it? And it's not Saber Athena. Must be Guardian Bravo with the whip. Yeah, well, Jimmy will look it up for you, you know, for his blog okay, or something. Right. But he, the, the, the Jaeger with the, the whip, the Mega Kaiju takes it and starts ram, like swinging it around and taking out all these skyscrapers from a aerial shot. Right. <laughs> yeah, I which I, at points I felt like was man of steel levels of disregard for collateral damage. It definitely was, but at least you know we're we're under the impression people enough people have been evacuated at this point, right? But it's because we had we had all those like kaiju bunkers, those like upgraded kaiju bunkers that yeah. they ran to, right? Right, and so. Yeah, that was kind of a side tangent here. That was another thing that I've heard some people interpret as China pandering because yeah, we go to Tokyo because that's what you do when it's a giant mecha giant monster movie, but they're also like, but it's China. They don't like Japan. So blowing up Tokyo would make them happy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at least this was mega Tokyo. So, you know, yeah. (laughs) China's also, I have to deal with the fact that they've expanded. (laughs) So (laughs) it's, and all the way to Mount Fuji, no less. So one of the great things I like about that shot is that in tokusatsu, kaiju film specifically, aerial shot- shots are really hard to pull off, convincingly. And my favorite shots in tokusatsu and Godzilla and Ultraman or whatnot are the low-angle shots 
with a lot of like miniatures in the foreground, kind of somewhat obscuring, but not totally obscuring, often framing the giant monster or giant hero subject, right? But when they switch to shots that are like a little too dead on or aerial shots, that's a little hard to pull off convincingly in tokusatsu. There's only a handful of shots I can think of that I actually appreciate from that angle. And this is the one place where I think Hollywood has tokusatsu is that aerial shot where Mega Kaiju is just swinging around this one Jaeger and taking out all these buildings. It looked great. Mm. It looked really, really good. And I, I was appreciative enough of the night for taking advantage of an effect style that I don't think as superior, but can do some things better. And this is the one area that I think it does look better. Okay. Or it can be pulled off better. Let's okay. put it that way. Okay. So, yeah, no, I, I really like the effects in this movie. I, I, I really enjoyed the Mega Tokyo fight scene. I, I like how that fight scene is never boring, you know. I'll give it, it that. I, and, yeah, you it, always do know where everything is. You know, yeah, and it has three acts to it. You know, the Jaegers are really killing the kaiju in this, and then becomes mega kaiju, and then the Jaegers are being demolished by that point, and then mega kaiju marches off to his destination, and then there's this kind of final act where, you know, you have to make this crazy effort to take out the the ultimate villain, right? right. Right now, uh, I so, will say this. I, I heard, I saw a tweet a few years ago from someone who says I do this, the, you know, special effects sort of stuff here. Because he was fed up with the whole daylight battles thing. I've been lo- waiting for an opportunity to talk about this. So I'm going to throw it in here. I think I talked about it in my Skull Island episode. And he said that he thought the whole daylight battles thing was overrated. He said, "You know why you have stuff like Pacific Rim? We'll talk about it. Battle of Hong Kong. Why that's set at night so you can see the neon." And we have really brightly colored characters, you know, with Gypsy Danger and the bioluminescence of the kaiju. They show up really nice at night. Mm-hmm. And then you look at something like Skull Island. Everyone's like, it's got daylight battles. And it's like, yeah, because the characters in that have much plainer colors. They're much more earth tone. You're not going to be able to see those very well at night, especially if you're going to have a big fight. So that was his critique and defense of the whole thing. Now, mind you, that was a couple of years ago before, you know, Godzilla versus Kong and everything else, but... Well, I think, you know, he's not wrong. And again, the Hong Kong fight in Pacific Rim is beautiful, and it's more beautiful to look at than the Mega Tokyo fight, all right? But I do also think, to Mega Tokyo's credit, it's also very colorful. All the Jaegers, like in that daylight, you the, their colors really, really pop. Even the Kaiju's colors, like natural coloring really pops, mm. you know? And it's a very different color palette as well. It's There's, a, you know, the main color palette for Uprising feels like this almost, uh, not a deep blue, but more like a, like a pastel blue. Okay. All right. And and it uses that color to its advantage in the cockpits, on the Jaegers, in mm-hmm. the, on the Kaiju and stuff like that. And and I, I think the daylight gives us a different kind of look mm-hmm. at that beauty. All right? right. And again, it's framed well. It's all positioned well. You can tell what's going on, which is more than I can say for 
you know, King of the Monsters or hell, even the 2014 Godzilla movie, mm. right? Of course, 2014 Godzilla movie has a home video release where you can't see anything, but oh, it, it's, oh, it's, my guys, give us a proper release of this thing that's not in 3D, please. Yeah, at this point, I've given up hope. But the point is that you can watch the battles in Pacific Rim Uprising and see everything fine, mm-hmm. understand all the information fine. I don't get why we have to rely on a bunch of neon colors and color filters. Thank you, Michael Bay, for uh, to make a shot, quote unquote, beautiful, mm-hmm. you know, or, or a good shot. Something that quantifies a good shot must mean it has to have a color filter in there or something like that. Not necessarily. A good shot means you frame it. You could tell what the subject is and what it's doing and what it's doing in that space. That's a good shot. I, I I couldn't tell you all that information with some of these other movies that we've been talking about. Right. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, 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 I understand that. All right, and now we'll get to my last main point of contention. I have some smaller ones, but we've kind of addressed a lot of those, and honestly, in light of the larger things, they're closer to nitpicks than major issues. And that is, I take great umbrage with the precursor's plot in this. I am not opposed to the idea. Let me state this right up front. I am not opposed to the idea of let's drop a kaiju into Mount Fuji, which is a volcano, to cause a chain reaction to, in one fell swoop, do what we've been trying to do, which is terraform the planet to our liking. I am not opposed to that. That sounds like a good idea. The detail that ruins it for me is they claim in this movie that that is what the precursors have been trying to do all along, (laughs) which makes no freaking sense, and I would argue retroactively makes the first movie really stupid. (laughs) Because if the goal the entire time was to just get one kaiju into Mount Fuji, these kaiju have the worst sense of direction ever because they're going to Australia and the and Manila and California and everywhere else but mm-hmm. Mount Fuji. They pass Japan and go to Hong Kong. Guys, <laughs> what the well, heck? And the thing that frustrates me as I was talking with a friend uh, with a friend about this, they could have fixed this easily, very easily. All they had to say is the precursors changed their plans. Their initial yeah. idea was to do a full scale assault, weaken infrastructure, you know, and do it basically. You play the slow game, you know, the long game, I should say. And now they're like, wait a minute, we can do this in one fell swoop. So that we have new information. Here's our new plot. Would have been easy. Yeah, and I've seen this complaint a lot, too. This is one that bothers me as well. Only thing I can say is, okay, so in the first movie, Newt, you know, drifted with the kaiju brain, which led Mm -hmm. to his kind of turn in this movie. Mm -hmm. Which I didn't like at first. That was another one of those things I felt like was very disrespectful. But then I found out that was an idea of Del Toro's. I'm like, okay, Mm -hmm. I would have trusted Del Toro with this. And Del Toro, while he was still slated to be the director, said up front... Newt was going to be the bad guy. Mm-hmm. 
like I, which I felt was like, well, thanks for that one. That's a spoiler. And, and so I was like in my head while watching this movie, I wonder if, I wonder if he's really going to turn here. And it hit me when he goes back to his apartment, he's, you know, drifting with a kaiju brain. Right. That's where this is heading. Right. That's exactly where this is heading. Yeah. I, which I, is, I, which is an interesting concept. And I, I guess it's kind of like the Mako thing here. Cause I felt like the movie was teasing that he could be saved and then they don't save him. Mm-hmm. And I do, yeah. I liked it because I love Newt. I, I just, I love Newt so much. He's such a great character. Charlie Day just was born to play this character. That's one of the things I feel like we'll never get to see because a third movie is probably not going to happen because they might have exactly. saved Newt. So that's oh, and, another and thing I have to live with. <laughs> we'd, we'd be waiting for them to save Newt that whole movie. Yeah, I know, exactly. But on the other hand, I almost find it like a, to be an interesting progression of his character. You know, right. he was the kaiju groupie in the... Not the Michael. Movie, right. But, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> He was yeah no not Michael he, he he was a kaiju groupie in the last movie and now he's he's finally you know he's hooked up with that kaiju right he's really uh-huh. uh, <laughs> he's gotten that kaiju into his house and is you know all in with this kaiju's plans and joining them and stuff like that so it in some ways it's actually a great progression of the character mm-hmm. and a very ironic twist right right I for one loved it. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I, I've grown to appreciate it, but it's, again, it's one of those things that ends up, like the death of Mako, being ruined in isolation. That's in isolation, yes. And, and I, I agree, that 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 is a problem. And I, again, we, we have to almost consider the theoretical third movie right. when talking about it a little bit here. Because yeah. I have no doubt he would yeah. have been rescued. So, you're or, basically, so to get back on topic here so your argument is basically that you know that the precursors changed their plan because of newt because newt was able to determine hey this is what actually needs to happen well no not necessarily my thought process was everything newt said in the first movie is completely accurate he just didn't get the full picture ah like i again you can't go off of what i'm saying because the information just isn't in the film but Newt said that, you know, the first wave was, you know, were scouts, right? Mm-hmm. And then the next wave was to take out, you know, the defenses, the military, stuff like that. And the third wave was to completely take over for the new mm-hmm. tenants, right? Okay. So the kaiju that have a terrible sense of direction, wouldn't they be the ones, you know, trying to test out the defenses first mm-hmm. and then, you know, making sure that the military might was at zilch? Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I mean, you know, maybe that's just what the waves were programmed to do. Maybe they had the plan in, in their mind all along. They just wanted to make sure they did it unrivaled. Maybe they were going for broke in Pacific Rim Uprising, which mm-hmm. would make sense given what happened to them mm-hmm. in the first film. Mm-hmm. So, which I'm willing to no, go with, especially with the sequel baiting that we got, which is we're taking the fight to you. You know, that was, yes. uh, that was John Boyega as Pentecost, you know, Pentecost's son pulling a dad, you know, a stack. Yeah. Being his like, dad. We're taking right. the fight to you. You know, that's, yes, which I, admittedly, even when I watched this the first time and I was sour, I thought I could get behind this. It would be different. Right, because at that point, they're, you know, it's not going to be another invasion movie or, in this case, a Cold War. Mm-hmm. And that's what Pacific Rim Uprising really is. It's, it's the Cold War, but this time the nukes get launched. Right. 
right? And it, this time it will be it would be like you know we strike back, right? But I do like the Cold War kind of like aspect to Pacific Rim Uprising. You know, you know, who what is that Jaeger? Who is who is in that Jaeger? You know, what's who is our enemy? You know, who's undercover? Mm-hmm. We don't know. You know, mm-hmm. the mystery of Pacific Rim Uprising is what really kept me involved in the film story. Mm-hmm. And while the mystery of, you know, how are they going to accomplish defeating mankind? Oh, we're going to drop a Kaiju with its crazy blood into Mount Fuji. Yeah, no, there's problems there. I completely agree. Mm-hmm. I have, I have no problem conceding to that, but you know, what? these, these issues that create some holes or that we find to be, poor decisions or weak decisions regarding characters. Again, looking at this movie, I like the bravery behind it. Mm-hmm. I appreciate the bravery. I appreciate the mystery it's, it tried to set up for us. And I appreciate that, you know, even though say like Amara is basically just a redux, her storyline is a redux of Makamori. In a lot of um, ways, yeah. I did appreciate the, the whole like, you know, children being sort of trained to pilot these things. There was a very Gundanium aspect to that, or, you know, neon just, are you talking about what things are made of or, (laughs) well, that didn't come out quite like I wanted to, but you know, neon just, there's all these mecha anime out there, right? Where, where it's like children piloting these things. Right. And, and I always felt when watching the first Pacific Rim, it's like, man, it's the only thing that's missing. It's the only thing that's missing. And having these cadets that are not ready to, you know, go up against these things, have to go up against these things, was something I really did appreciate. You know, I, I got a little bit of a Wrath of Khan out of that, you know, mm-hmm. Kirk's speech. You know, I know this isn't what all of you expected. I'm sorry, you're all going to have to grow up a little bit sooner. Mm-hmm. And then they're thrust into battle with, you know, mm-hmm. their worst nightmare. And I will give the film credit, it was willing to kill some of those kids. It was willing to kill some of those kids, exactly. You know, what, what one criticism I, I remember was that, oh, they don't kill enough people in these Jaegers. I was like, but they did kill some. And they killed several. <laughs> and it wasn't and it wasn't nonchalantly. I, they gave it weight. I will mm-hmm. say that. Yes. So I think I think the danger of going up against these kaiju is still there, even with more advanced Jaegers. Because as soon as that mega kaiju came in and tore those things up, whew, I, <laughs> I was I was definitely on the edge of my seat there. Yeah, um, I mean it very yeah. clearly establishes yeah. its threat level. We, you know, Michael and I talk oh, about yes. that on the power trip all the time. How do you establish your villain's threat level? Well, you do things like this. And the best villains in Power Rangers are the ones who have very clear and defined threat levels. And they're Mm. very high, clearly Mm -hmm. defined threat levels. (laughs) And Mega Kaiju was an absolute juggernaut. Yeah. So, (laughs) for sure. For sure. And it was was... a nice twist. I think, again, at that point, I was so sour toward the movie. I just wasn't appreciating anything with the first time I saw it. And I'm like, oh, yay, it can Voltron. But yeah, so I I get what you're saying. You know, it's it's reminding me of something a friend of mine once said about Rodan. See, I'm I'm one of the f- people out there that don't praise Rodan as highly as everyone else. Mm-hmm. I think I'll be honest. I think it's about as good of a movie as, say, Varen. Not to say Varen is a bad movie. I think Varen is a very good movie. 
but I also don't think Rodan is as good as, say, the original Godzilla or mm-hmm. the Mysterians, okay? So, Mysterians we makes about, Jimmy very happy, yeah. <laughs> Mysterians makes G very happy. So, <laughs> I, I was talking about Rodan with him and explained to him all the issues I had with it. And he goes on to say, well, you know, you're right. Those issues do exist, but you're also missing out on everything it does well. Mm. And then he proceeds to tell me about all the things it does extremely well, all the things that do make sense, all the things that, you know, really set up the genre for the next 20, 30 years. Right. And, and I couldn't, you know, I concede. Mm-hmm. Those everything was done very well, and Pacific Rim Uprising does have issues. You know the precursors plan definitely holes in there, right? Mako Mori, mm, I can't, ugh, I cannot, I struggle with that as a standalone movie, and I I wish we had a third one to sort of give us back her radiance in this franchise, right? And that hurt. So, but. Things this movie does do well. Very consistent daylight battles that are shot well. A very, very charismatic main character. A person who we thought was the heel, but wasn't. Lots of twists like Newt's turn or the combination of the kaiju or the... What's the Jaeger's name with the kaiju brain in it? It had a really cool name. Oh, uh, keep talking. I'll look it up. Yeah, the the revelation that there's no pilot in there. It's a kaiju brain instead. The whole plan to make kaiju Jaeger hybrid creatures, you know, all these things are done behind the sort of Cold War mystery, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, I really appreciate that. I, I appreciate the fact that Gypsy Avenger went out to this one area looking for where the Jaeger with the Kaiju brain in it was built as kind of like a recon mission, not, not necessarily to go into battle, but to find information. Right. And, and I also really do appreciate the battle out there against it. Obsidian fury, obsidian fury. That's it. Yeah. Which almost had a different name, but then he just turned out to be tonight discovered that there's a Marvel character with that name. Yeah. Right. Right. (laughs) DC, DC character, but, but uh, obsidian fury, great design, great Jaeger name. The whole mystery behind that was great. And I black Maria. (laughs) Yeah. Black. Yeah. Black Mariah, black Mariah. And I loved how, when they repaired the Jaegers for the mega Tokyo battle, that Gypsy Avenger actually took the chainsaw swords from uh, Obsidian Fury to replace its sword. Did you notice that? Yeah. Little details like that. Little details like like the the Kaiju Museum and that one shot where where they're fighting in Mega Tokyo. You know the the re- theme of finding a, a connection with someone you had lost to. You know, Newt and oh shoot, what's his name? Burn Burn Gordon. Mm. Gottlieb. Gottlieb. Yeah. Burn Gorman's the, the actor's name. Gottlieb. Mm-hmm. They do find each other again momentarily. And there, there's a rekindling there. There's a rekindling between Jake and Mako. There's, there's a rekindling between Jake and Lambert. Uh, one of my favorite scenes in the movie was, was the, the ice cream scene. Yeah. 
you know, which was shot late, which was one of the reshoots that they felt the movie needed. And it was a great decision. Mm-hmm. Great storytelling decision. So I, I think, yes, this movie has some marks against it that definitely make it an inferior movie to Pacific Rim. But it also has a lot going for it that is overlooked, mm-hmm. that people don't think about, that people haven't researched either and understand mm-hmm. why the decision was made, which I think is now important given that we don't have a third movie. Right. Right. So while Pacific Rim Uprising, I think, is an inferior sequel, I don't think it's a bad movie. Mm-hmm. I think it's a movie that took some big swings and did everything it could against the lack of time, money, and resources that it had. Mm-hmm. And that is a very, very, very admirable thing, especially for this genre. Mm. So... There's my convincing you, sir. <laughs> Your closing <laughs> statement? Yeah, Pacific Rim Uprising. Yeah, uh, what was that, Jimmy? Oh, you want to know if he succeeded? You know what, Jack? I don't s- just say this because you're my friend. But I, do, I will give you credit. You made a valiant effort, and I think you did it. I don't think I like it as much as you. But I'm willing to cut it more slack now. You know what? And that's all, you know, it, it's not even that I wanted to change your mind necessarily. Mm-hmm. Just think about it a little bit more. Yeah, for sure. You know, yeah. like, uh, there, there's, there's a lot of positive things in this movie that mm-hmm. are so overlooked. And frankly, there's a lot in this movie that's so straightforward. It's kind of hard to mess up anyway. Right. Like Jake's story arc. There, there's not a whole lot of complexity to it. Yeah. But it works. Mm-hmm. Which is more than I can say for other movies from legendary pictures. But it's, it, it works. All right. And the big swings it takes, maybe they worked, maybe they didn't. But they were ambitious enough to admire. Right, right. Yeah. And I do, I agree with you that if nothing else, I think the most important thing people should take out of this defense of Pacific Rim Uprising is do your homework. You really should. And if not, do your well. Yeah, I guess this goes in, in you know, in tandem with doing your homework. Think about a movie. Yes. Think about a movie. That's all I ask sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of people out there who just watch a movie just to be entertained, and they think as long as they turn their brain off and enjoy it, then they're good. But I feel like they're missing so much when they do that. Right. I can't change. I can't make them watch a movie any differently, but they are missing a lot. And then in, you know, in our genre, there's a lot of people out there who are basically just watching it for the monsters. Right. Right. For the action sequences, which is a shame because there's also so much more in these movies than that. Right. There's a, a lot of these directors wanted to do much more with their careers. And so they injected things that they wanted to do in other movies into these giant monster movies and and you're missing out on that. Right. And so with Pacific Rim Uprising, I think Denight did everything he good, could in a very difficult situation to make a good movie. And it's kind of funny whenever he talks about the movie on Twitter or defends the movie or when the few conversations I've had with him on social media, <laughs> it's almost as if there's a somberness to it. He understands the movie isn't as good as it could have been, but you also get the the sense that he did everything he could. Right. right. So, and I, I have to give him credit for that because right. 
I really do think I I do believe he did everything he could right. against all odds. Right. So right. His commentary, I will say, is pretty eye opening. I'm glad I listened to it beforehand because I know you spoke very highly of it. So like, if he's going to reference that commentary, I better listen to it. Mm-hmm. And it, it is eye opening. I would say, yeah, it does help to put things into perspective. And I think. I don't think people necessarily painted Denied out as some sort of a villain in this whole operation, but it definitely puts that notion to bed, I would say. Oh, definitely. Definitely. He cared about this movie. He cares about Pacific Rim. And honestly, I'd give him another shot. If we couldn't get Del Toro back, I would definitely give him another shot. Yeah, I don't think I would necessarily be opposed to that. So, which... More than I probably would have said if uh, you know before. <laughs> I mean, I did actually go on a G Fest panel to discuss this movie, and I basically said I don't like it, and I think it failed the franchise. I've softened. I will confess, I've softened. Probably more so than our mutual friend Michael will ever soften about a certain 2017 movie. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you're coming on the power trip. I'll work on it. him. Don't worry. Make sure. <laughs> uh, no, but yeah, Pacific Rim Uprising. I appreciate the film. I appreciate the night. And I'm at least happy that we got a Pacific Rim sequel when I was pretty sure it wasn't going to happen. Right. I was pretty sure it wasn't going to happen. Not to say that I'm glad we got a sequel for the sake of getting a sequel, but I'm glad we got a sequel that tried despite a studio probably not having a whole lot of confidence or faith in it. Right. Given how little time and resources they gave him. Right. For sure. Well, congratulations, Jack. I guess you are. Did David slay Goliath? I'm not quite sure. Maybe you at least knocked me over. I'll say that much. Kicked him in the shins and ran away. Yeah, kicked him in the shins and ran away. Yeah, I don't. I don't think I have a a stone embedded in my skull today. But you know, as much as some people might want a stone embedded in my skull, no, Jimmy, no. Nope, just embedded in your shin. Yeah, shin just glide. embedded in my shin. I'll be limping for a little while, perhaps. <sighs> <laughs> But now, Jack, it's now time for one of the most exciting segments of this podcast, the Patreon shout-outs. Oh, dear. Go show Travis Alexander! Danny DeMella! Eli Harris! Chris Cook, Bex from Redeemed Otaku, Damon Noise, The Cellcast, Eric Anderson, Ted Williams, Winja the Ninja, Tofu Fury. Uh, do you feel like Goku now? <laughs> no, I can still. I still have my voice. So that's, oh, okay. No, okay. Sean Schmill today. No, oh, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And you, you were able to power up a little bit faster than Goku typically. 
I'm sure you're sick of those jokes hasn't, at this point. Hasn't been a week. So. <laughs> uh, yeah. We so do anyway. have a Dragon Ball episode coming up, though. So uh, it's uh, oh, uh, on the Drift Space? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh for yeah. Superhero? Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, I, I would expect nothing less. Yes, sir. Yep. Nothing. Nothing less, good sir. <laughs> all right. So next couple episodes, I'll let you I'll let all of the kaiju lovers know what we got coming up. So next up after this, we're getting back to Americaiju. This was kind of a bonus episode for Americaiju. So we will be having Robert and his wife Courtney, his wife and co-host, I should say, and producer from Record All Monsters. Which, by the way, Jack, I think you would enjoy Record All Monsters. It's also very academic, so you, I think that's a. If you're looking for another kaiju podcast to listen to, I recommend Record All Monsters. I'll put them down. Mm-hmm. So we will be talking about Colossal with Anne Hathaway. Ooh. Oh, that will that's be an film. interesting one, to say the least. <laughs> Well, that's a great, great film. It is that's a very different film. <laughs> mm-hmm. Very, very different. And then after that, we're getting another Patreon-sponsored episode. We will be getting a Patreon-sponsored episode from the Cellcast, who we just shouted out here. And they have requested Mighty Morphin Power Rangers the movie. <laughs> also known as... Ivan Ooze, the movie, co-starring the Mighty Morphin B team. <laughs> uh, you, you may not be too far off, because let's be honest, he kind of steals the show. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he does. I, you, uh, the power trip made this very plain. Yes. I, I don't... <laughs> we did. Which is why I think it's funny, because I, I, I covered that movie on the power trip, and then suddenly the cell cast is like, uh, we want to do Mighty Morphin the movie. I'm like, oh, I'm going to do it twice. The funny thing is, is I'll be doing another movie twice, thanks to the power trip. <laughs> All right, yeah. <laughs> Which uh, y- you'll have some involvement with. Not not on the power trip, not on the film vault. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> but we'll talk about that in another episode. In another, in another life, brother. Yeah, yeah I got gotcha. you. Yeah, very much, very much. And now, Mr. Hudgens. We come to a very important segment of the show. Shameless self-promotion. So, what do you got? Well, I'm Jack, known as G on the Drift Space. You can find me on Twitter at G-Man Mysterioid, where I'll probably write something that ticks you off and then ignore any response you have toward it because I generally turn off my alerts for all tweets I make. And uh, you can <laughs> well, also- That's why we call you the trigger, man. <laughs> You can also find me uh, on my substat called Deferential Wrath of Rusting Markalite Cannon. At Which Markalite. is real. Yeah, it is real. It is real. It's at markalite.substack.com. <laughs> and you can check out my podcast, The Drift Space, on any of your favorite podcatchers. You can find us on our socials at The Drift Space. We've been on hiatus for a while, but we are returning soon there's not a date set in stone yet but we are working on it we already have some episodes recorded and we can't wait to put out our new stuff Hmm. phase three is coming right phase three is coming yeah we can't wait i can't wait either we're mainly just waiting for rebecca's art to get finished that's the main (laughs) hold up right now have her art get finished for her podcast oh yeah. yeah We're, we're looking forward to coming back. Uh, oh, what was that, Jimmy? 
yeah, I might be sending her some assignments too. So, <laughs> well, she enjoys it. Uh, she's been having a, a lot of trouble with her tablet and her stylus lately. That's unfortunate. But yeah, it is. But she's putting out some art still. She's doing everything she can against her lack of time and resources. <laughs> kind of like a movie we just talked about, right? Mm, yes, going uh, going uh, against. Yes, the quite. Uh, <clears throat> mm, yes, quite. Mm, not sure where that came from. Mm. Anyway, <laughs> so thank you once again, Jack, for joining me on this. I would say it, it was a successful, valiant effort, much like this movie, I guess you could say, right? <laughs> I think so. I'd say so. One down, another one to go. I'm coming for you, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> we live in fear. Live in fear. <laughs> All right, Jimmy, before we really come off the rails, cue the credits. Thank you for listening to The Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nate Marchand. If you want to join the discussion and be heard on the show, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Monster Island Film Vault and on Twitter, where our handle is at TheMonsterIsla1. You can subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, and TikTok. Follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASA Jimmy and our many other colorful characters using the links in the show notes. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wanderer on the Offensive, live edit by B33J, Serax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack, Battle with the Colossus, and the Opened Way, Battle with the Colossus, by Koatani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus. All film and audio clips belong to their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and or Podchaser to spread the word about the show. You can also support us by joining MIFV Max on Patreon. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas Media production. Sayonara! <laughs>